trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, hello there and welcome to the show. Thank you for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I think this is the time, you know, in human history where we are needed. I'm not saying, yeah, we're going to step up and save the world, but we definitely need people who are willing to look at things from uh, something other than the, uh, uh, how does Thomas Woods, Tom Woods put it, uh, the the acceptable, the three by five index card of acceptable opinion. Yeah, there's a lot of that going around today. This this is a program that's dedicated to challenging some of those narratives, encouraging free clear and independent thought because we don't believe that the truth needs to fear any questions and encouraging you to find uh, where your influence is best used. Here's a hint. Usually it's right where you happen to be standing. And however you found this program, whether it was through word of mouth or you stumbled across it somehow online, I am so glad that you found it. Thank you for being part of our audience. Please take the time to visit my show notes page at thebrianhideshow.com and if, you, if you're so inclined, maybe drop a quick note to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Pure-Light.com, HSLAmmo.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I really wanted to start this week on a more optimistic note, and I'm having some trouble with that because I have this sense that we are standing on the brink. And I know that sounds very apocalyptic, and I, I'm sorry. I'm, I, <clears throat> I feel like I should be sharing, you know, some, some encouraging news, something that, uh, you know, gives you, you know, warm fuzzies and makes you feel happy and encouraged. Well, I think we have some hard facts that, that need to be faced, and, and I want to deliver, you know, any commentary on those facts in, in a way that, uh, that hopefully empowers and enlightens rather than just, you know, upsets you or makes you feel, oh, great. Here's another, you know, philosophical beat down of how bad things are. But look at some of the stuff that's going on around us. Mask mandates are beginning to return. Uh, talk of lockdowns is increasing. And, and most importantly, I don't know if you saw the, the video clip last week of the uh, Alabama governor, who, by the way, is a Republican, just to, to demonstrate this, this uh, statist, you know, we must control everything from the top down mentality is uh, it, it's not just, you know, something that's on, on the political left. Now, there are Republicans doing it, too. This uh, this governor, I, I forget her name, uh, talked about she was asked by a reporter. So uh, what can we do to get these vaccinations going to get these shots in arms? And she got angry. I mean, she snapped at the reporter. Why don't you tell me what people are supposed to be responsible? I guess it's time we we start blaming the unvaccinated. This is ridiculous. You trust people to do the right thing. It just, just, whew, there it is, right out in the open. And it's the kind of thing that uh, that really, it's, it just leaves you thinking, okay, where is this going to go? What was the comment uh, that I saw on Twitter over the weekend? Oh, yeah, from Stacey Rudin. And this is, this is, again, in response to Alabama Republican Governor Kay Ivey. 
Kay Ivey said, quote, folks are supposed to have common sense, but it's time to start blaming the unvaccinated folks, not the regular folks. It's the unvaccinated folks that are letting us down. Now, we're going to spend some time this hour on why that is utter fertilizer. But the comment that Stacey Rudin made on Twitter when she posted it, she said, this is the scariest thing I've ever seen. In plain English, no disguising of intention, the party instructs its followers to start blaming. She says, here we go. This will be a ride to remember if we survive it. Now, if that seems like, well, now that's pretty pessimistic. Um, something I want to point out to you is there are different stages by which people are marginalized and, and controlled and eventually dehumanized to the point that you can start, you know, taking direct action against them. As in, you know, this, these are the steps that lead to genocide. And it's not like we haven't had some world history to where you could look at this and say, well, let me check that out and see. Here are the 10 steps. First of all, there's classification. People are divided into us and them. Next comes symbolization. People are forced to identify themselves. Number three is discrimination. People begin to face systemic discrimination. By the way, Think about what you may be hearing about, uh, well, the unvaccinated should not be able to go out into public. They should not be able to go to sporting events. They should not be able to attend school. They should not be able to work. Okay. Number four, dehumanization. People equated with animals, vermin, or diseases. Now, pay close attention because I, I think this is where we're set. So we're right in between three and four, at least from what I'm seeing. Step five of the 10 stages of genocide is organization. Government creates specific groups, and we're talking police and military, to enforce the policies that are aimed at these uh, groups that are considered to be on the out. Number six comes polarization. The government broadcasts propaganda to turn the populace against the group. I think Kay Ivey from Alabama may have skipped a few steps here. Number seven, preparation. This is where official action begins to remove or relocate people. You know, it's for their own safety, of course. Then that's followed by step eight, persecution. This is the beginning of murders, theft of property, trial massacres. Step number nine is extermination. Now, we're talking wholesale elimination of the group. It is not uh, extermination and not murder because the people are not considered human. And the tenth step is denial. The government denies that it has committed any crime. Or if it does admit, well, we did have to take care of a problem, usually what it's going to do is it's going to couch it in the language of, hey, we did what we had to do. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the end goal of those who are pushing for lockdowns, pushing for mask mandates, pushing for more increased and more stringent division and, you know, uh, segregation of the unvaccinated. But I'm encouraging you to please consider where does this lead? It's leading in a predictable direction. And while it may not be the goal of, well, I don't know that uh, these people are setting out here to, you know, to commit genocide. The problem is it sets the stage for someone down the road, some angry little corporal with a funny mustache at some point to uh, step up and essentially just engage in turnkey totalitarianism. This is not a direction we want to go. 
And, and I'm hopefully not scaring you so much as, as just trying to apprise you of the danger. The line in the sand is getting very, very clear. If you are unvaccinated, and I, I don't care the reason, you know, I don't care if, you know, if you believe that uh, the virus is just a hoax, I, that's fine. If you just don't uh, resonate with the idea of, of vaccines, you know, or you think that, that they primarily cause harm, again, that's your call. It's your body. I'm not the person who should be making decisions for you. But it's very, very clear right now that there is a huge top-down push for COVID compliance, and particularly in the area of vaccines. And I know that there are those who will say, but, but you know, Brian, this is the responsible thing to do. And, you know, there are some conundrums here that I'm having trouble working through. Like, um, you know, for instance, the, the CDC is being lobbied right now experts, I'm putting that in quotation marks, air quotes, experts, the headlines say, are are begging the CDC to change their mask guidelines and to insist that, yes, even those who are fully vaccinated should wear masks whenever they are out in public. Ooh, that's got to make some people angry, especially those who are fully vaccinated, who are thinking, well, finally, at least I don't have to wear the, the stupid mask. Yeah, it's... I. I have felt from the very beginning, and I still feel like this is much more about a test of compliance and control than it is about, hey, we've got to protect people from this virus. I don't deny that the virus is real. I don't deny that there are real risks. However, I try to keep these things in perspective. And from what I can see, you know, the the people who are at greatest risk are people who are over 70 years of age with serious health problems, obesity, diabetes, or, you know, hypertension, things that that are already threatening their health. That seems to place them at greater risk from COVID. Yep, occasionally younger people get it too, but let's let's look at this from from a, a perspective of how many. I think that even those people who get COVID, even the dreaded Delta variant, still have a survival rate. This is the people who become infected, have a survival rate of 99% or higher. Now, it's no fun to get sick, but I think it's being blown out of proportion. And we're expected to just fall in line and pretend that, uh, you know, this is the most dangerous thing ever. And the only purpose in our lives is to avoid getting COVID at all costs. Now look around you. It's costing you a lot more than you probably bargained for. We'll come back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, my apologies for not being more chipper and upbeat. I really do try to look for positive things to share. And today, I don't know. There's just there's a lot of stuff going on. And some of this stuff that I, I feel like I, I really should share or at least offer you the chance to consider this for yourself. Not a lot of it seems to be good news. And, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that there is a, there's a very strong push right now to return us to lockdowns to to go back to well we've got to do this the the way that we tried it you know over the last year and and the harm that's done is so significant one of the things that concerns me about the lockdowns 
is the number of people that I have encountered is, who, who have lost hope. I mean, have been in despair. Some of them have, have turned to addiction. Some people have, have suicided themselves. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, this is, this is all the fault of every politician. But what I'm saying is they should have been able to look at this situation and ask the question, is this doing more harm or is it doing more good? Because politicians have this terrible blind spot where they look at what happened. Well, you know, it's uh, true that there there were people who lost their jobs and livelihoods and people who became very socially isolated. By the way, particularly older, more at-risk people locked up in old folks' homes or locked up in assisted living facilities and refused, or they they were denied, rather, the ability to, uh, to visit with family members at all. Oh, the risks are just too great. That's the most heartbreaking aspect. And yet when you hear those, those negative effects, when you hear about the incredible amount of damage done, typically media reports it as well, you know, COVID caused this and COVID caused that. That's not true. The virus just did what viruses do, and it continues to run its course. All of the damage that you hear about being done is a result of politicians who chose to implement policies that caused those things to happen. I'm still reeling over the fact that they were arresting people or ticketing people for sitting and watching a sunset in their car, isolated from everybody, threatening people, showing up to church. Uh, what about the the shore patrol or the, the police patrol that was out there, you know, scooping up some poor guy out there on his paddleboard all by himself out in the Pacific Ocean? Well, he violated social distancing policies by himself in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, it just, it it totally staggers the mind. There's a great article from Michael N. Peterson. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. Why government lockdowns mostly harm the poor. Some interesting stuff to consider here. One of the worst policies of a developing countries that a developing country's government can make is to deprive its citizens from earning a living. Michael Peterson says, Unfortunately, this is exactly what we witnessed in response to the coronavirus pandemic that began to truly take shape in March of 2020. Now, many people have already highlighted the enormous cost of lockdowns on individuals and businesses. There's been scant discussion, however, on how these policies impacted developing countries relative to their wealthier counterparts. He says in developing countries, small and mid-sized enterprises, as well as informal enterprises, make up roughly 70% of total employment. In addition, these small and informal businesses account for more than 30% of GDP. Now, for most developed countries, on the other hand, informal markets account for less than 20% of total employment and just about 9 to 15%. Of GDP, So what this means is that lockdown orders affect countries differently based on the economic composition of each nation. For developed countries, lockdowns undoubtedly imposed significant economic and health costs. Many workers in the public or in the service sector, rather, like the food industry, for example, were left unemployed. They had to rely on government stimulus checks to get them through the bumpiest stages of the pandemic. Some businesses had to shutter their doors entirely leaving many employers without jobs as well. That's to say nothing of the severe mental health consequences of the government lockdown orders. By the way, he has links to all the different things here that he's uh, asserting. 
So you can follow those through if you want and, and see for yourself. Is he just making this up? Is he just opining? No, he seems to have it quite well uh, documented. Now, Michael Peterson says, however, richer countries are able to are better able to flexibly adapt to such changing circumstances, even in the event of unprecedented and some would argue draconian lockdowns. And that's because many businesses were able to transition to remote work, a luxury that many developing countries can't afford. In a working paper for the World Bank, it was estimated approximately one in five jobs can be performed remotely in the developed world. And in developing countries, this figure stands at only 1 in 26. Wow, that's a pretty big disparity. As Karsten Noko writes, if the choice before you is to stay home and fail to provide the evening meal for your family, or to brave it out into the city and try to fend for your family, I know what choice I would make. Now, there are numerous cases of citizens in low-income countries defying lockdown or strict stay-at-home orders just so they can earn enough to feed themselves and their families. And in some instances, these defiant stances have led to angry protests in many parts of the world. In response to these protests, many governments have issued repressive orders, such as Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte uh, declaring that violators will be shot if seen disobeying lockdown orders. In Colombia, recent protests against a tax plan and overbearing lockdowns resulted in dozens of casualties as police and protesters violently clash with one another. Michael Peterson says because governments in developing countries are more prone to corruption and are in constant fear of political unrest, they have greater capacity to abuse their authority under the guise of public health safety. For example, in Argentina, many citizens have been harassed and attacked by police. Another reason lockdown orders have disproportionately hurt developing economies is due to their low savings rates. In general, high domestic savings rates tend to lead to higher economic growth rates. Unfortunately, since developing countries typically have lower domestic savings, it's much harder for those countries to weather lockdowns because individuals are unable to draw upon savings to compensate for lost income. For many developed nations, domestic savings is higher, which means that these countries will fare relatively better when income is severely reduced or altogether non-existence. Existent, rather. He also says some forecasts attribute major increases in global, global poverty to COVID-19 without specifying how much of the increase can be attributed to specific policy actions issued in the wake of the virus. Now, he says these estimates are not in themselves inaccurate, but they fail to distinguish between economic costs associated with voluntary social responses and government-imposed mandates. Now, he also says dozens of studies have shown that government lockdown policies wouldn't even pass a cursory cost-benefit analysis, a requirement to which many U.S. government agencies must submit. And it also appeared that developing countries reflexively instituted lockdown measures by merely imitating the early responses, responses rather taken in more developed nations. So, very little calculated deliberation was conducted in countries which had more to lose through unilateral and blanket policies than better-situated, richer nations like the U.S., England, and Australia. He says, contrary to popular opinion, there were real alternatives available other than government lockdowns. And these alternatives should have been especially reviewed in developing countries, where a one-size-fits-all policy is least effective and more likely to do more harm than good. 
For example, it would have been wise for governments to invest early in testing and contact tracing, or at the very least, allow private actors to provide these services without onerous restrictions. In his new book, Economics in One Virus, Ryan Bourne asserts that fast and reliable tests would have helped to overcome the informational problem of determining who is infected or likely to be contagious. Similarly, in one paper, co-authors Chowdhury and Jomo state that if contact tracing and other early containment measures had been adequately done in a timely manner to stem viral transmission, nationwide lockdowns would not have been necessary. We'll come back to Michael Peterson's commentary here in a few moments. Bottom line is there were other options, but for some reason politicians choose not to see those options. What does that tell us about the way they think? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Been sharing an article here from Michael N. Peterson. Why government lockdowns mostly harm the poor. Now, I know you're thinking to yourself, I'm not poor. I was just telling my butler this morning and the chauffeur, you know, how great it is not to be poor. No, I think a lot of people are, are kind of feeling the, the pinch of this. Even people who are of, of somewhat substantial means. They've been feeling the fallout from all of the various lockdowns and other interventions that the government has imposed or the various governments around the world have have imposed. But if it can't pass that cost-benefits test, yeah, why do we put up with it? I think fear is probably a big part of it. Fear and nobody wants to be the one to, to say, hey, there's a better way. We'll talk about that better way here in a few moments, particularly how that pertains to Sweden since we actually have a nation that, uh, that didn't take this, uh, this authoritarian approach. By the way, in his article, Michael Peterson says, some economists have proposed more autonomy be given to local and state governments, which are more likely to implement policies that better suit the needs of people within each jurisdiction, instead of that one-size-fits-all approach. If more resources were devoted to some of these strategies, he says, major government lockdowns could have been avoided. And additionally, he says, we should embrace the prospect of rich countries selling vaccines to poor countries, which would in fact make both nations better off. Finally, vaccines should be the biggest investment governments make during a pandemic to ensure the virus halts its spread as soon as possible. Now, he's not saying, and they should mandate that everybody, you know, line up and roll up their sleeves and get the shot. Make the information available. Let people make their decisions. But the harder you lean on coercion to get people to do it, whether it's bribing them with donuts or lottery tickets or whatever it may be, the more you're going to run into skeptical souls like me, who, you know, the harder you try to force me, the more I'm going to be like, whoa, wait a minute here. Mr. Used Car Salesman or Mr. Timeshare Condo Salesman. Michael N. Peterson says real alternatives were available if only governments were willing to see. These irresponsible government actions are especially acute and more harmful in developing countries and among the poor because most workers can't afford to sacrifice weeks or perhaps months of income, only to be confined to what's effectively house arrest. He says if we sincerely care about the poor, we must rethink lockdown policies and vow to do better 
next time. I will have a link to this in the show notes at the show.com. Let's talk for a moment about, okay, but, you know, we had to do this. All the nations did this. Uh, therefore, you know, there's consensus. Okay, I get it. Everybody else is doing it, right? We tried this on our parents when we were kids. It usually didn't work out well. But let's, let's talk about the exception here. Sweden's no-lockdown COVID response has been referred to as an experiment. But that's false. And it's pretty easy to prove. This is a thread on, uh, on Twitter from Team Sweden Unlocked. And this individual who, who wrote this up says, look, I'm going to walk you through pre-2020 pandemic plans from the World Health Organization, Centers for Disease Control, Johns Hopkins, the UK and Australia. And would it surprise you to learn that none of those organizations prior to 2020 recommended 2020-style lockdowns? And they start with the World Health Organization pandemic plan from October of 2019. Quarantine, border closure, and contact tracing are explicitly not recommended. And here's the proof. I mean, there's a screenshot of their website. Here's the CDC's 2017 pandemic plan. Zero mention of restaurant closures, let alone business closures. Stay-at-home orders? Nope. Only voluntary home isolation of the sick and exposed. Masks? Only by sick people in crowded situations. And again, he's using their own words. They're, they're, the screenshots are there to show you what, what they were saying. Now, the CDC's 2017 plan did consider temporary school closures, but it never really defined what temporary means. So we turn to the CDC's 2007 pandemic plan. For a COVID-level pandemic, they considered closures of no more than four weeks. Also, fun fact, prior to 2007, social distancing did not exist in any pandemic plan. That was a theoretical, untested concept pushed into CDC pandemic guidance by George W. Bush based on a high school science project. I believe Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research actually wrote about this pretty extensively last year. Now, here's the UK's 2011 pandemic plan. Masks, border closures, mass gatherings... Not recommended. No evidence to support their efficacy. Also, it says it will not be possible to stop the spread of or to eradicate the pandemic. Then there's Australia's pandemic plan. It starts with an ethical framework ensuring that the rights of the individual are upheld as much as possible and privacy and confidentiality are important and should be protected. That's not the way they've been behaving, though, is it? Australia also, when it came to school closures, said not recommended. Workplace closures, not generally recommended. Masks, no evidence. Canceling mass gatherings, not generally recommended. And here's an interesting fact. Western Australia had a COVID-sized flu, or perhaps maybe it was undetected COVID, back in 2019. But they never closed schools or businesses, and they never wore masks or closed borders. And literally no one cared or noticed. Johns Hopkins put out a pandemic plan in September of 2019 saying there is a broad lack of evidence of efficacy. Now, they're referring to NPIs, which is non-pharmaceutical interventions. That's a fancy way of saying lockdowns. But again, you can read all of this for yourself. I will include a link to this tweet in today's show notes at the thebrianhydeshow.com. This isn't just, I mean, look, I'm, I'm the guy yakety-yakking here, but, 
But the information here, this is backed up. It's documented. Johns Hopkins, by the way, also calculated what a 1918 level pandemic would look like today. Remember the Spanish flu of 1918? If that level of pandemic was taking place today, Johns Hopkins estimated we would see 100 to 400 million deaths. Currently, I think about 4 million people have deaths attributed to COVID. So any politician, journalist, or COVID idiot who compares COVID to the 1918 flu is off by a factor of 25 to 100. And interestingly enough, by the way, the uh, Johns Hopkins plan even mentions lab leaks. These events are believed to be considerably underreported due to lack of reporting mechanisms and potential consequences to the researchers or research institution, especially when you're dealing with China, which operates with quite a bit of secrecy for some reason. Maybe it has something to do with control. By the way, Johns Hopkins also looked at pandemic plans all around the world. Surely China, which it claims it, which claims it eradicated COVID with eight weeks of lockdowns in one province, must have had a fabulous pandemic plan, right? Nope. It's because the last time China published a pandemic plan was before 2009. Now, this poster goes on to say, still not convinced Sweden wasn't an experiment. January 23rd, 2020. Trying to contain a city of 11 million people is new to science, said Gaudin Galea, the World Health Organization's representative in China. It has not been tried before as a public health measure. So there you have it, folks. Sweden was not a bizarre outlier. It was the only country that actually followed pre-2020 pandemic plans. Everyone else panicked, threw their existing plans out the window, and slavishly copied China with utterly disastrous results. Now, to me, this makes a lot of sense, but I can understand. You know, for for others, it may be like, no, 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 I'm still not convinced. I don't know where that disconnect comes from, where, where people, if it's fear or if it's just the sense of, well, we've got to do something, and besides, so many institutions have gone along with it, you know, even trusted institutions. Where I live in the Intermountain West, uh, the, the LDS Church has a great deal of influence. And its leadership, even though it's a worldwide church, um, the, the leadership is based in the Intermountain West in Salt Lake City, Utah. But they've taken a very, very hard stance with, uh, with many of the prevailing authorities on how to best address concerns over COVID. And look, I'm not saying they're in lockstep. They're, they're in cahoots with them. Most likely they are erring on the side of let's, let's play it safe. But it sure looks like they've been taking their cues from you know, the authoritarians who think there's nothing we can do but shut it all down and try to control people as tightly as possible. And when you get some pretty strong institutional backing like that, it's easy for a lot of people to set aside what otherwise would be a healthy sense of skepticism or a healthy sense of, whoa, hey, that doesn't make so much sense, you know, to sit at home and let my business, you know, turn to dust. But I guess if, you know, this is what everybody in my faith is doing, then that's that's what I'm going to have to do, too. Stay skeptical. I'm not telling you you have to believe everything I'm saying. But you really should be questioning that official narrative at every possible opportunity. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, thanks for bearing with me. I feel like I've got a lot of stuff off my chest, and yes, I'm definitely feeling better for having said it. I'm sorry that it's not more optimistic, or at least I'm I'm not... uh, I'm not full of the cheerio, you know, kind of, uh, let's, hey, let's look at the bright side of things today. But I, I see the walls starting to close in again, and, and I'm really, really concerned that we are about to return to a mistake that was made last year, I guess just out of habit or out of the sense of, oh, what else can we do? And I worry that this time, we, if we if we lock it down, if we allow the authorities or those acting under a color of authority to lock us down again. If we comply, we are setting the stage for something really, truly ugly. And since I'm one of the unvaccinated, I'm a little bit concerned about, uh, you know, what happens. I mean, am I going to be forced to live in a ghetto somewhere? Because that's what you do with, you know, people that need to be ostracized. Don't like a lot of the choices sitting in front of us, <laughs> but but I guess you know we gotta we gotta pay attention here. You know, one of the unintended consequences for this top-down push for COVID compliance has been the damage that this kind of activism does to the public's trust in science, as well as uh, their trust in government. There's a British science writer by the name of Matt Ridley who has explored this growing disconnect between science as an institution and science as a philosophy. I just wanted to to share a couple of excerpts here. This was published in the Wall Street Journal. And and it starts with a a quote of a of a tweet from Joe Biden. I believe in science, Joe Biden tweeted 6 days before he was elected president. Donald Trump doesn't. It's that simple, folks. But what does it mean to believe in science? British science writer Matt Ridley draws a very pointed distinction between science as a philosophy and science as an institution. And he says the former grows out of the Enlightenment, which Ridley defines as the primacy of rational and objective reasoning. The latter, like all human institutions, is erratic and prone to falling well short of its stated principles. Now, Mr. Ridley says the COVID pandemic has thrown into sharp relief the disconnect between science as a philosophy and science as an institution. Now, Ridley, who is 63 years old, describes himself as a science critic, which is a profession that doesn't really exist. He likens his vocation to that of an art critic and dismisses most other science writers as cheerleaders. Now, that somewhat lofty attitude seems fitting for a hereditary English peer. As 5th Viscount Ridley, he's a member of Britain's House of Lords and zooms from his ancestral seat in Northumberland, just south of Scotland, in between sessions of Parliament. At Oxford nearly 40 years ago, Mr. Ridley studied the mating patterns of pheasants. His fieldwork involved much crouching in long country grass to figure out why these jolly interesting birds are polygamous, unlike most other avians. And with the Canadian molecular biologist Alina Chan, he's finishing a book called Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19, which will be published here in a couple of months. Now, it will likely make its authors unwelcome in China, says this article. As Mr. Ridley worked on the book, he says it became horribly clear that Chinese scientists are not free to explain and reveal everything they've been doing with bat viruses. That information has to be dug out by outsiders like him and Ms. Chan. The Chinese authorities, he said, ordered all scientists to send their results relevant to the virus for approval by the government 
before other scientists or international agencies could vet them. That's shocking in the aftermath of a lethal pandemic that's killed millions and devastated the world. Ridley notes that the question of COVID's origin has been tackled by people outside the mainstream scientific establishment. People inside have not only been disappointingly incurious, but have actually tried to shut down the inquiry to protect the reputation of science as an institution. The most obvious reason for this resistance, if COVID leaked from a lab, and especially if it developed there, science finds itself in the dock. And there are other factors at play as well. Scientists are as sensitive to other elites as charged to charges of racism, which the Communist Party used to evade questions about specifically Chinese practices, such as the trade in wildlife for food or lab experiments on bat coronaviruses in the city of Wuhan. The article goes on to point out how scientists are a global guild, and the Western scientific community has come to have a close relationship with and even a reliance on China. Scientific journals derive considerable income and out and input rather from China, and Western universities rely on Chinese students and researchers for tuition revenue and manpower. But all that may have to change in the wake of the pandemic, according to Mr. Ridley. It's a brilliant article, well worth your time. The final note here says, in Mr. Ridley's view, the scientific establishment has always had a tendency to turn into a church enforcing obedience to the latest dogma and expelling heretics and blasphemers. Now, that tendency was previously kept in check by the fragmented nature of the scientific enterprise. Professor A at one university built his career by saying that Professor B's ideas somewhere else were wrong. But in the age of social media, the space for heterodoxy is evaporating. So those who believe in science as philosophy are increasingly estranged from science as an institution. And according to this Wall Street Journal article, that's going to be a costly divorce. I'll have a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. One final thought here, and this is an article from Adam Johnston on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, why the threat to free speech suddenly looks much bigger. And it's pretty tough to ignore. I mean, you've got this recent announcement that White House officials are working with Facebook to limit the spread of what it calls misinformation. So what about that growing partnership between big tech and big government? I mean, social media is a significant battleground in shaping America's political landscape. I don't think there's any doubt about that. 72% of U.S. citizens of voting age actively use some form of social media, while 69% of Americans in the same group use Facebook alone. That's according to data from Social Bakers. Overall, 82% of the population in the U.S. had a social networking profile. That means about 223 million U.S. social media users as of last year. So there's no question social media companies and their platforms have incredible power and influence, especially in journalism and the media. Back at the beginning of the pandemic, the New York Post ran an op-ed suggesting, hey, coronavirus might have leaked from a lab. Facebook stepped in saying, whoa, whoa. That's false information. But here we are over a year later, and Facebook has now decided, oh, well, that lab leak hypothesis isn't conspiratorial. Now it actually allows stories and opinions on that subject to be shared. How interesting. The New York Post also published a story about Hunter Biden's emails and laptop before the last election. 
In response, Twitter and Facebook both limited the story's reach. They ultimately locked the New York Post Twitter account for about two weeks before reversing its decision. Keep in mind that lockdown was uh, before the election. Now, the New York Post is not some no-name conspiratorial blog. The paper was started in 1801 by Alexander Hamilton. It has more than 2.2 million Twitter followers, more than 4.4 million Facebook followers. And then later in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearing regarding censorship and suppression on social media during the 2020 election, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey admitted that his platform's censoring of the Hunter Biden story was a mistake. In both instances, social media companies took it upon themselves to be the arbiters of truth, and in both cases, their decisions proved to be wrong. See, social media is incredibly effective in amplifying individual voices and helping to coordinate collective action, which is exactly why totalitarian governments like China severely restrict social media and the Internet. It's also why Cuba completely shut off the Internet in response to anti-government protests. But that can never happen here in the United States, right? Well, unfortunately, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that an American tech company could consider censorship as a good business model, whether for profit or just for self-preservation. Prime example of this comes from Google and their development of their heavily censored Chinese search engine dubbed Project Dragonfly. After The Intercept broke the story, Google eventually canceled it due to extensive pressure from employees and even Congress. There's much more to this article by Adam Johnston, but the digital news feed, he says, has replaced the public square. And big tech, whether they like it or not, has a responsibility to help facilitate the free exchange of ideas. He says in the final analysis, American social media companies base their entire business model around monetizing individual self-expression. And he says they can and should serve as champions of free speech, especially when they're confronted with government pressure. I'll have a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. By the way, please, when you visit my show notes, check out the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, NMLS ID 715386. They are an equal housing opportunity lender. If you need to get a loan quickly at the best rates possible, Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This is The Brian Hyde Show.